Well, hopefully you're in the book of Exodus chapter 3 and we continue our study that we have entitled 10. A series that eventually will take us through the 10 commandments that God has given His people. But we noticed very quickly as we began in Exodus chapter 20 that God also wanted us to be aware and to know of the backstory that led up to the giving of the Ten Commandments, which he simply summarizes, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It is important that we know the moments, the experiences, the interaction, the intervention of God in the dealings with his people to draw them out of the land of Egypt and to bring them to this place and where he is giving them the Ten Commandments. And this morning we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 3 in a message entitled Commissioned. For we have seen the persecution of the people of Israel there in Egypt where their numbers have grown so great and their fruitfulness has abound, that Pharaoh now who no longer is aware or knew of the man Joseph, who established the children of Israel there in Egypt 400 years earlier, 70 of them in total. Now we are up to about 2 million Jewish people there in Egypt. And Pharaoh is afraid. He is concerned that if they were to ever leave, the economic consequences would be horrendous. And if they were to ever rise up with the enemies of Egypt, Egypt would be conquered. So he began a campaign to suppress the children of Israel under a great weight of persecution, which entailed slavery. And when that didn't uh, cause the growth to cease, he then went on to extermination asking for the elimination of every male child. And God saw, and God heard, and God knew, and began to work. In chapter 2, he began to raise up a man in whom he would use as deliverer and began to prepare that man, began to work in that man's life from the moment of birth. At 40 years old, that man has found himself now to be in exile from Egypt in the land of Midian. He has taken a wife. He has begun a family. And as a result, now another 40 years have passed. And once again, God hears, God sees, and God knows the cries and the groans of his people there in Egypt. And as now the timing is right, God now appears to Moses. As Moses now, another 40 years has transpired in his life, he is now 80 years old, and on a, mo- and on a morning of just daily routine, he is out and about with the herds that he is tending as a shepherd. The ideas of Egypt 40 years past and yet still seem to be on the forefront of his mind. And as he is going about his daily business, early in the morning he travels out to apparently the farthest point of the desert. And there he sees on top of a mountain a bush burning, but yet not consumed. He stops, he looks, he responds, 
And he comes before this bush. And in that fire, the voice of God speaks to him. And God appears to him and commissions him. Let's begin in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Eighty years old. Something out of the ordinary causes Moses to look and to consider and to respond. He ventures up and he discovers a bush on fire, but yet not being consumed by that fire. For they will learn in the future that this is the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. A place today that is traditionally known as Jebuel Musa, there in the Sinai Peninsula. And this photo is from the south looking up at what appears to be the traditional location of Mount Sinai. And Moses responds, and as Moses grows closer, he understands that something is occurring before him that he fully cannot comprehend, but he must see for himself why the bush burns, but yet does not be consumed. And as he looks upon it, the angel of the Lord, which is an Old Testament phrase that often represents an Old Testament appearance of God to people. And God speaks to him through this bush. And as he sees this bush on fire, many Jewish scholars believe that it communicated to Moses things that he would need to know and to have a concept of if he was going to fulfill the commission that was before him. The picture was the picture of God. It revealed all his power, all his glory at that moment as the bush was burning and yet was not consumed. It symbolized the going through of affliction of the nation of Israel, and yet Israel was not consumed by the affliction that it was under. But it also illustrated to Moses humility. As one commentator wrote, finally the bush's illustration to Moses, a humble shepherd who with God's help would become a fire that could not be put out. So Moses turned to look. And God called him from the midst of that bush. Moses responds with three words that are often found in a correct response to the call of God. Here I am. And notice, God wanted Moses to know that this was not any ordinary scenario. That he was standing on holy ground. What made it holy? 
Uh, obviously, the dirt was still there that was there earlier. Wouldn't it have been better if Moses kept his shoes on? Wouldn't that have been cleaner than maybe his, his own feet? What made the ground holy is because God was there. And immediately, God wanted to substantiate with Moses this idea of reverence and respect. For I am God, Moses, and you are going to be my servant. And you must know that if you are to approach me, you must do so in reverence, in respect, and understand that I am holy. And I have brought you to this place that I may commission you for the ministry and the deliverance that I have now set forth. One commentator wrote, Note that Moses was brought to the place where he bowed before God and adored him in wonder. For this is the true beginning of Christian servants. Servants who know how to take off their shoes in humility can be used by God to walk in power. It all begins with humility. And that humility is obtained the moment we understand that God is perfect and holy and we are not. And therefore, it requires us to move and to interact with him with reverence and respect and awe. And then we find that God moves to appoint Moses here in verse 7, first appearing to him and then appointing him. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good land, a large land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. I have seen, I have heard, and I know. That's the three words that God uses to allow Moses to understand that he is fully aware of the situation and those things that are occurring there in Egypt. I've seen, I have heard, I know. And I will come down. It's a phrase of divine intervention where God is now going to come in and intervene and do something extraordinary. I'm going to bring them from this land of oppression and bondage to a land flowing with milk and honey, which was a phrase used to show that the land that God was going to bring them to was going to be a land that was going to be uh, agriculturally prosperous. It was a land that was going to be perfect for them, for he has seen their oppression. One commentator wrote, I love this. When God says, I have seen, I have heard their cry, I know, I have come down. What a message of grace. Moses often had to wonder about the condition of his people, and now he was shown that God had been watching over them the entire time. The entire time. Moses rejoiced to hear God was about to deliver Israel. But when he heard the news that he was the deliverer, 
And God says, I will send you. God used human instruments to accomplish His work here on this earth. There had to be 80 years of preparation for Moses. Now it was time to act. Unfortunately, Moses did not reply at that moment, Here I am, send me. We now discover that after all of these years, and Moses being semi-aware of his role and what he was going to fulfill, is now hesitant. He's apprehensive. He's 80. He's been tending sheep for 40 years. He's been removed from the scenario all of that time. He's in exile. And in that reluctance, two questions form. A question of ability and a question of authority. The question of ability is, who am I, God, to do such a thing? And the question of authority is, who shall I say has sent me? And God will answer those questions. The reluctancy of Moses. God has called others to ministry. If you turned to Isaiah chapter 6 in your Bibles, I'd like to read this with you if I may. One of the most extraordinary commissioning of any individual has to be the account here recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah is called to be a prophet, notice the similarities that we discover in this and also notice how Isaiah responds to the commission in which God has called him to. And that was to be a prophet unto his people. In verse 1 of chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the post of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. The very first two characteristics of God that we hear once again of in the appearance of God to Isaiah is what? Holiness and glory. Holiness and glory. And throughout the Bible, whenever anyone has ever personally experienced God, there has been a reverence created that is birthed upon the, the holiness and the glory of God. Let us never forget that. That this Father of love that we have, that demonstrated that love through the sending of His only Son, Jesus Christ, is a father of holiness and glory. And we should reverence him, respect him, be obedient to him out of love for him. I always get very concerned when someone tells me about an interaction with God or God having to appear to them that doesn't begin with holiness and glory. I get very concerned I get very concerned when I hear about those who have supposedly traveled to heaven and I don't hear about holiness and glory. Because I know that that is going to be the first two things that we discover the moment that we are before the Lord is His holiness and glory. 
Many feel that the moment they get into heaven, there's something that they are going to do. There's some question that they're going to ask that has perplexed them and plagued them, like, God, giraffes, necks, why, you know? And is a zebra black and white or white and black? These things are killing me. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? God, please explain it all to me. No, the very first thing we're going to do is be in awe of His holiness and His glory. And in that moment that that bush was burning but not yet consumed, the holiness and the glory of God was revealed. And notice in verse 5 of chapter 6 of Isaiah how Isaiah responds. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Immediately in the presence of God, his personal sin was revealed because of his pure holiness and his pure glory and his pure righteousness. Isaiah was immediately brought to that place where he discovered who he actually was. But then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. For you and I, it wasn't a lump of coal. It was the person of Jesus Christ that made that possible. It was him stepping out of heaven, being born in that manger, growing to an adult, living his life in full obedience to the Father, proclaiming the kingdom of God and the gospel that was to follow. And he proclaimed to us that we need to be removed for darkness into light and we could go from death to life and we could do it in him and through him. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But immediately Isaiah was confronted with the reality of his own sin, and he knew he couldn't get beyond it. He knew he couldn't push through it. He knew that there was nothing he could do to reconcile it before God. God needed to intervene. Here, through a touch of a coal, with you and I, the incredible incredible act of a Savior, the person Jesus Christ. So Moses now begins with his questions to God. And in this commissioning of Moses, God answers his questions. In verse 10, Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. There are some that believe that Moses is beginning with a list of excuses, and they find five here. I'm not sure that this is necessarily an excuse, but a true concern. Because Moses is in Midian because he tried to do it himself. He tried to deliver the people himself and through his own energy and his own ability and they didn't recognize him as a deliverer. And that act of being self-appointed and self-acting has now caused him to go to Midia. And every day in Midia, he would realize and remember that the reason he is there is that he tried to do it himself and could not do it. I believe that this is an appeal to God saying, God, I don't have the ability to do it. 
It took 40 years of me being here in Midian and working with these sheep and starting a family and so on for me to realize that I can't do it. So how is it I going to be the one? How am I going to deliver them? How am I going to do it? And God simply says to him, notice the response of the Lord here in verse 12. So he, that is God, said, I will certainly be with you. That's where our ability draws from. God being with us. When God commissions us to do things that we don't think that we are capable of doing, we must understand that it is God working in and through us to bring about those things. It is God who is going to do the work. Moses, I am going to be with you. You are no longer alone in it. I am going to do the work. I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You're going to bring them back here, and I'm going to validate your authority in my commissioning of sending you back to your people. I'm going to substantiate it. I am going to be with you the entire time. There are many who believe that at this point, many of those who wrestled with the idea of God, Jehovah, may have still uh, consolidated God or confined God to a locality. Not really under, understanding his omnipresence, meaning that he is everywhere all at one time. And so for Moses to know that he was going with him, he was leaving the locale in Moses' mind possibly, and going with him to Egypt and then returning to the mountain where the children of Israel will serve the Lord. But now we already have one of the clues to indicate to us why God gave the people the Ten Commandments. I'm delivering you out of Egypt. You're going to come back to this mountain. You're going to serve me here. And obviously that is when the Ten Commandments are going to be given to the people of God. As it continues here, in verse 13, Moses had a second question. Once getting past the question of ability, it now came to the question of authority. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Throughout the book of Genesis, God had already revealed himself to his people and they were already calling him Yahweh or Jehovah. So the question that Moses was asking here is, what authority do I go in? What name sends me? For example, any servant of a king would have to have the king's blessing or authority to go and do what they were about to go and do. And so Moses now wants to know, in what authority am I coming to your people? Who shall I say sent me? And also equated in that is the question of, what type of God are you? I want to know more about you. I need to know who is giving me the authority and sending me back to these people. And in these five words, I am who I am, 
Yahweh reveals himself. Jehovah reveals himself. And there have been many who have looked at this and trying to give rational explanations for why God revealed himself in this way. But I believe those who go to translate these words from one language to another really hit the nail on the head in why God identified himself in such a way. One translator, one that I really respect, wrote this. The point is, within this name, is that Yahweh is sovereignly independent over all creation and that his presence guarantees the fulfillment of promises and covenants in which he has made. Two things that are found in this name that we must take away from this title for God, I am who I am, is that he is sovereign. He is over all things. He is not subjugated to anything but his word. And he is the king. He is Lord. He is God. And he is fully capable, number two, of fulfilling all the promises that he has made. That what he has promised, he is able to perform. And there are verses in Isaiah again that we find this same movement discovered. Listen to these words. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, and before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Pretty definitive, huh? I am God, he is saying. Or in Isaiah 45, 5-7, listen to these words. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know, and from the rising of the sun to its setting, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. The sovereign God is discovered in the title, I am who I am. The in, individual that is able to bring about all that he is about to accomplish is found in the title, I am who I am. And that is the way we should approach it and to know and to understand the God in whom we serve. One commentator wrote this. What Moses asked was, what does your name mean? What kind of God are you? God explained the name of Jehovah is a dynamic name based on a Hebrew verb to be or to become. He is the self-existent one who always was always is and always will be the faithful and dependable God who calls himself I am. So to allow Moses to know the authority in which he is being sent within, Moses asked himself the question, who am I for his ability? And to know the authority, God said, I am who I am. Meaning, Moses, what you can't do, I will do. Who you are not, I am. I am the authority sending you back. And I'm going to do great wonders and signs. And he begins to reveal to Moses now 
all that is about to happen before it happens, showing that God knows the beginning from the end. Look with me in verse 15. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Meaning he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in this title is the best explanation of all that he is. Verse 16, Now go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the the affliction of Egypt to a land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites. Just saying if you're listening. A land flowing with milk and honey. And then they will heed your voice and you shall come And you and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But, verse 19, I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be. And when you go, that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of hers who dwells in her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and put them on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Not only am I your ability, not only am I your authority, Moses, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it actually happens. To let you know that I know of every detail that's going to take place from this point going forward. They will heed you this time, the people of Israel. And you will go to the king, Pharaoh, and he will resist you. And even by a mighty hand, meaning a hand of military uprise against Egypt, you wouldn't uh, survive. You would be thrown down. So it'll be my hand that comes down. And I will show him my wonders. And I will perform signs that he has never seen before. And at the end of it all, he will let you go. And... I'm going to bring you to a good land, a land that I have promised your fathers beforehand. And you are not going to go empty-handed. It'll be restitution for all of the years of slavery that you have committed to, and they have kept you in bondage to. You will be paid for in this restitution, and I will lead you here to myself. For I am who I am has sent you. Scholars have put together a list of seven implications found in the I am who I am statement. And these seven implications, I'll go through them very quickly. Number one, God exists. Number two, no reality beyond God exists. Number three, God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is an exhaustible source of power. Number four, 
I am who I am causes and creates objectivity, and that objectivity is crucial. That means that once you are confronted with the reality of that I am statement, you must look at everything objectively through the lens of that reality. Number six, we must, not, we must conform to God and He not to us. And number seven, this God has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. The seven implications of the I am statements found in those five words. However, though, centuries later, one would be born in Bethlehem, and at 30 years old, he would begin to proclaim that he was the one sent by God. He taught in the temple at 13. He started his ministry at 30 and began to proclaim, and he began to make statements about himself. And John records for us seven statements that Jesus made clarifying this I am statement. I am who I am is now clarified in these seven statements when Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. In 8.12, I am the light of the world. Jesus further proclaimed in 10.2, I am the door. 10.11, I am the good shepherd. 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. 15.1, I am the true vine. And 14.7, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This I am statement now centuries later is completely clarified in the seven I am statements of Jesus himself. And if that wasn't enough, in John 8.58, Jesus totally stirs it up by claiming they have had an interaction and to know Abraham, but yet he was only 30-some years old. How is it possible to know Abraham? And Jesus said to all that there were those who were listening, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am using the same words that came from this burning bush. For God is found in the person of Jesus Christ and is perfectly exampled for you and I. And the I am statement that may be carry ambiguity initially is then clarified in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know more about these great I am statements, look to the person of Jesus Christ. For Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So Moses is commissioned. There are three things that we need to know about God as we wrap up because we have been commissioned, as Moses has, in a very specific task. But three things we need to know about God. Number one, that we learn that God today is faithful. He called Abraham. He cared for Isaac. He guided and protected Jacob. And he would be with Moses. He is the God of individual as well as the God of nations. And he does not change from generation to generation. Number one about God, God is faithful. We need to know that as he has commissioned us. Number two, we learn from this passage that God is concerned and compassionate. He saw the affliction of his people and he heard their cries. He heard their cries. I've seen, I've heard, I've known. Today there are many who feel that God doesn't know what they are going through personally. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. But the reason they wrestle with that is because they don't understand God's timing. They don't understand why God just doesn't intervene right now and do something right now about the specific injustice or whatever may be taking place at the moment that we would require God's intervention. 
But God has a very specific, perfect timing in which he intervenes in people's lives. Where he intervenes on a national level and brings about his purposes. His timing is always perfect. And did you know that in Genesis 15, verses 13 through 16, God told the nation of Israel that they were going to be in Egypt for 400 years. Then he said to Abram, Now certainly that your descendants will be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. But then he goes on to say, And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. And now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. From the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God is saying, the people of Israel will be in Egypt for 400 years. They will be afflicted. I will know that. I will deliver them. They will leave with, I will judge Egypt. I will bring them out with great possession, just as he is fulfilling and doing right here. And this was hundreds of years before it, before it actually occurred. Secondly, one of the hardest aspects of being a Christian is waiting on God. Can anybody give me an amen on that? You know, when we pray, it, God usually answers in one of three ways. And the first two, I think, are easily dealt with than the last one. When we pray, God may say yes, and that's okay, there's the answer. God may say no, that might sting for a moment, but it's still God's perfect will. So we rest in that fact and that comfort. But that third one is the one that angsts me. Wait. Just wait. But God, I don't think you understand this incredible opportunity that is before us. Wait. God, I don't understand that this is time-sensitive. We have to jump on this right now. Wait. No, God, you just don't get it. Now is the perfect time. Act now before it's too late. Wait. That's always the hardest one. But God fulfills his things perfectly. And if you struggle with waiting on God, I encourage you to make Psalm 37 your chapter of memorization. But I'll read the first five verses for you. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Psalm 37, for those who struggle in waiting for God. But God is concerned. He is compassionate and he will act. And number three, we learn that God is extremely long-suffering once again. The Lord answered all of Moses' objections and gave one assurance after another to encourage Moses. When Moses said, I am not, God replied, I am. Faith lies hold of what God is and obeys what God has said. Faith sees the opportunity while unbelief sees the obstacles. Are you arguing with God about something that he personally wants you to do? For God is long-suffering, not only with those in the world in hopes that they would come to the saving faith of Jesus Christ and come to repentance and believe on him, but he's also long-suffering with us when we refuse to do what he has asked us to do. But now comes to our commission. Do you realize that everyone in this church, this is probably the most important time, so focus in, of our message this morning. You and I 
as individuals of this thing called the church, the body of Christ, has been commissioned by God with a very specific and a very, very, very accurate and articulated commission. Meaning that it was very well devised. And Jesus knew what he was saying when he said it. And it is demanding because it requires our whole life to be laid down as a living sacrifice before the Lord. See, God has seen the oppression of his people today. God has seen the effects of sin and death today. That's the oppression today. That is the bondage that all are in today. And that is of sin and of death. And the only escape for this is the person of Jesus Christ. That individual placing their faith and trust in Christ. Coming to Him for saving faith. That's the deliverance. That's when we are led out from that place of darkness to light. From death to life, etc. And that commission is found in these words in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came, spoke to them, saying, "All listen to what he says here, and compare it to what we have just heard this morning. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I love that. There is nothing out of the realm of Christ's authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, if you didn't see it, let me spell it out for you. Within the Great Commission, we find the same two assurances that Moses received from God at the burning bush we received in the Great Commission. Both issues are addressed, ability and authority. The authority is directly from Jesus Christ because he has all authority in heaven and in earth. That's our authority. Our ability, he says the same thing that the burning bush said to Moses. I will be with you. Isn't that fascinating? And now go and into this world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the commission for the church. And each one of you here today plays a part in that commission. You are all members of the body of Christ. There is a place for you. There's a position, a role that God has created you to fulfill and to play, and you, therefore, must get on board. Now, these are our marching orders. And all of us working together in different ways are trying to fill that commission and making disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are no bystanders in this equation. Nobody is in the body of Christ just to watch. Okay, There are no spectators. You all play a role. You are all part of the body. You are all parts of the body. And when you question your personal ability... And whatever God has called you to do to fulfill that role within the body, to fulfill this commission, know that He is with 